I'm Claire White, and joining me is James Foley. Hello. You're on a roll, aren't you? I am. <laughs> and this is Dragons, Sexy Robots, and Adventures, a Nerd Manual. We are here to discuss new nerd creations, how they were made, and explore the roots and the characters of the stories. And today, we are talking about Into the Badlands. Oh yeah. <laughs> Into the Badlands takes place in the far future, in a post-apocalyptic world. Civilization has built itself up, and now the Badlands are ruled by barons, slash landlords, slash shoguns, with the help of their clippers, slash assassins, slash samurai. Sonny is the deadliest clipper in the Badlands and is loyal to his baron, the powerful Quinn. However, everything changes when he learns that his lover Vale is illegally pregnant with his child. And the discovery of a young boy with mysterious powers that might be his ticket out of the Badlands. The show is loosely based on the Chinese tale Journey to the West and stars Daniel Wu, Ora Brady, Madeline Mantock, Aramis Knight, Emily Beecham, and Martin Cossex, and many others. The first season premiered on November 15, 2015, and the third season will come out on April 22, 2018. Oh my goodness, we're so close. Well, actually, by the time this is released, the third season will have premiered. Oh, fantastic. So we're recording it a little before the premiere of the third season. James, who is filling in for Kyle, he's going on some sort of vacation. Yeah, says the lady who, by the way, folks, is leaving the recording of this <laughs> podcast to go on her own vacation. They live good lives. <laughs> Well, James is doing the history of Wuxia. Yes, Wuxia. Wuxia, yes. excuse me. And I should mention that this is a martial arts show. So Wuxia is really briefly the... It's a genre. It's a, a genre based on Chinese fo uh, folklore and their literary traditions that involves martial arts heroes. That sounds amazing. And yes. I'm going to be talking about the production and how this crazy martial arts show got made. So, James, why don't you take it away? So, originally, uh, Kyle was going to be talking about uh, the history of Wire Fu. Right. But then when I started looking into Wire Fu, which I was really excited to and learn more about. And what is Wire about, Fu? Well, Wire Fu is the technique of using wires to create a sense of weightlessness on the part of the actor or performer to make them be able to fly through the air the way the characters in Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon do, or the way characters did... In, into the Badlands do? Into the Badlands, or in something like The Matrix. The Matrix mm -hmm. and Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon were the first times that people really saw um, actors performing on wires the way they do in Hong Kong in a global sense, where the world got to see it, America got to see it. So that is actually what I learned when I looked into Wire Fu, was that Wire Fu exists only to demonstrate the powers and abilities of people in the wuxia genre. Okay. And this is a genre that goes back thousands of years. It wasn't called wuxia thousands of years ago, but its origins in Chinese folklore go back thousands of years. And these people have powers that enable them to be almost weightless because of their chi. Uh, so I'm going to talk about that genre and, as I was saying, these martial arts heroes. So the definition of wuxia... Uh, very um, literally, is a martial hero or a martial vigilante. Um, but we'll say they're, they're martial heroes. Uh, 
the plot of a wuxia story and, and see if this sounds familiar to other stories that we've seen and enjoyed. Uh, James is brimming with excitement. Oh, we're here. talking about my stuff today. Like, uh, the more I did this research, the more I realized the things that I loved as a kid and love as an adult all go back to this oral tradition and this literary tradition. Um, things that I enjoyed in the West, anime, all kinds of things. Anyway, um, here's a typical plot. Uh, a young man or woman, lots of female badass characters in wuxia, or even uh, somebody that is a gender that we can't determine, um, uh, either a woman or a man or a eunuch, you know, there's a lot of that kind of play going on too. Uh, one of these characters has a tragedy befall them. They must now seek justice or vengeance. And the way they're going to do that is with the martial art that they already know, all these characters in wuxia, you, you gotta know martial arts if you're gonna be the hero of one of these things. Um, what you're going to do is you're gonna use the martial art you already know, and then you're gonna go and also learn a series of other martial arts from other martial arts masters, so that at the end of the story, at the climax, you have become a super martial artist who can now confront evil successfully. Can you think of a story that follows that basic outline? I can think of many. Many stories. One of our shared favorites is Avatar The Last mm -hmm. Airbender. It is a wuxia-inspired story. Star Wars? Espe oh, well, I mean, I, that's different masters, but it's not different techniques. We'll get into Star Wars later okay. and how that relates to, to chi powers. Um, but anyway, uh, one of the other things that made me think of Avatar The Last Airbender are the values of characters in wuxia novels. These are people that value justice, freedom, truth, generosity, bravery, and who desire glory but do not desire material wealth. Um, now, they also tend to uh, favor individualism. And you might be thinking, wait a minute, how do the governments of China feel about these <laughs> stories about people that prize indi about individuals? <laughs> individualism and a love of freedom? Mm -hmm. And the answer to that is the governments of China, and this is even before communism, Different dynasties did not like these stories and the yeah. values that they presented. These are not stories for and by the elites. These are stories for and by the people. Yeah, it sounds like rugged outsiders. Yes, and I kept thinking of Westerns. Right. I kept thinking of Westerns, and this genre is much older than our Westerns. Um, but I think there's a common thing there, too. Uh, oftentimes the uh, settings are, I mean, I saw some people online talking about it as, uh, you know, at the fringes of civilization, but really it's not that. It's more that you tend to be around people who have decided that they don't want to partake in the government as it is. Mm -hmm. Not that they don't love law and order to a degree, but that the system in many cases is corrupt. And so they are not, they to be not, <laughs> to not be corrupt have removed themselves from it and are not actively participating yeah. in politics. It doesn't sound like something the Chinese government I read about would like very yes. much. Yes. So at different times, wuxia stories have been put down, but they have always resurged. I think in part because they are too cool. Mm -hmm. You can't keep a good man down. <laughs> you can't keep a good story down. And it's thousands of years built into the, the Chinese psyche and storytelling tradition. So you can't. it's hard to wipe something like that out. And sometimes the government likes it because it reminds us all that we are awesome and we're Chinese. <laughs> and so these stories come back and are supported mm -hmm. by the government too. Anyway, um, to get into their abilities, which is what you would first notice from the outside and why you would say, ooh, Into the Badlands, that's Wire Fu, that's Wuxia. I can tell just by looking at a trailer. 
because these characters have tremendous martial skill.、Mm-hmm. They're utilizing chi powers.、Uh, chi being the cosmic life energy that connects us all to the universe and that can be refined and harnessed for cool, cool abilities. This is nothing you've ever thought about before. Nothing I've ever thought about before. These powers include being able to shoot energy waves from your body, like your hands and your eyes, and increased strength and increased resilience,、um, and other awesome things. Uh, it also includes, and this is what where we get into wire foo. What they're trying to create, I mentioned it before, techniques of body lightness. So you use your chi to make it so that your body loses its weight while you retain your strength, and sometimes your superhuman strength. So you're moving in a way like gravity doesn't affect you. It's how I aspire to be able to move one day. Yes, and it would help you if you had people put a harness on you and attach you to wires and cables. Or if I was just、pulling. able to harness my chi. <laughs> Or that too. Work on it.、Uh, another thing that you can do with,、um, or another ability that they often have in these kinds of wuxia stories,、uh, is.、Um, Pressure point techniques. So you know the points of acupuncture on the body、yeah. and how they relate to how your whole system is working. Yep, yep. They'll be able to hit those in a martial way. By the way, a lot of these things are in Into the Badlands. Oh, all of these things. Well, chi powers. Yeah, kind of. You kind of, kind, kind of, of in、yeah. their own way, in their own way. These stories almost always take place in a pre-modern China, so it's a historical China with fantasy elements. Although sometimes, like Into the Badlands, it can take place in the future. There is some sci-fi wuxia. Going back to the earliest origins of wuxia、mm-hmm. and why these people have these particular powers, where they get these ideas of chi and how you could refine it to be able to do these incredible things. Right, sounds kind of religious. It is. It is. It's、uh, based on ideas that come from Taoism, and then stories in the oral tradition of Chinese folklore that have been influenced by those ideas from Taoism. Right. Yeah. So it's those two things: Chinese folklore as influenced by Taoism. That makes so much sense. Yes. So Taoism, really quick, trying not to butcher it, just give a little surface <laughs> explanation that helps you to understand. Remember when I tried to describe Shinto? <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> trying to be, trying to be good about it.、Uh, so Taoism is the way, as based on the teachings of Lao Tzu.、Uh, among many good things, they value compassion, frugality, and humility. They believe in a universe that is comprised of both competing and complementary forces, yin and yang,、uh, and they desire a harmony and union with nature. They want to take the natural action or the natural inaction to go with the flow of how things are meant to be. They also believe, and this is really key,、uh, in self-development. And the pursuit of spiritual immortality through refining your chi. So,、mm. this is a big deal. And there's a great、uh, video by Story Dive,、uh, the YouTube channel that I'm going to mention at the end when we're talking about sources. And、uh, in that video, they point out something really cool: that this idea of self-development and refining your chi through your own spiritual practices is. A stark difference to the West, where we have characters that, if they're gods, it's because somebody made you a god. Another god made you、mm. one, or you were, you know, you're a superhero that gets their powers through some science fiction like way. Like a radioactive spider maybe bit you. Yes, or you're just born Superman. Yeah. You know, and the yellow sun is doing these amazing things for you. This is not about that being done to you. This is about a choice that you make, and through your own discipline. And hard work 
and spiritual pursuit of enlightenment, you can come to have these kinds of abilities. So, like, anyone can be a superhero. You just have to work really hard at it. You just have to earn it. And in Into the Badlands, it's full of people that earned it. (laughs) (laughs) People that have worked and worked and worked, and they're not all good people, Mm -hmm. um, but they have uh, developed these abilities through years of training. Um, And when people have uh, chi powers and spiritual powers, uh, you know, it's something that has had to be refined, even if they were born with it. Uh, One of the earliest kinds of these stories, uh, which were, I'm probably mispronouncing this, uh, about the Yaoxia, or wandering Shia, who were like knights errant, or uh, if they were European, or ronin in Japan. So these are masterless people of great skill. Uh, In this case, not always martial artists, because this isn't wuxia, this is something different. Um, But they're people who decided that their path in Mm -hmm. life was to wander. And it's based on more nomadic traditions in the north of China. It sounds almost Buddhist monk. Maybe, yeah. I mean, this is this is Tao, though. Right, right. Yeah. Um, but they're wandering. Uh, their path in life is to wander, and as they encounter people, they try to help them, and they yeah. try to seek justice in the communities that they pass through along the way. They've realized that they're not meant to be a musician or a clerk or whatever they were in their life. They were meant to be a wanderer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, think about all the stories that we've seen that have characters like that in anime and in the West and, like I was saying, in Westerns. Yeah, I was going to say, like, there's that kind of um, also re- Christian figure, that wandering, you A know. pilgrim. Pilgrim. That's the word I'm looking for. Yes, yes. Yeah. Uh, all of that helped to form the stories that would become wuxia. And part of the reason, uh, part of the way that started to get uh, more formalized Mm-hmm. was when it stopped being just an oral tradition and started to actually get written down and not just short stories, but in novels that were taking from this great, rich tradition. So the literary origins of wuxia stories date back to the Ming Dynasty. And I'd like to talk about a few... When, of, is, when is the Ming Dynasty? The Ming Dynasty takes place uh, around the 14th and uh, 16th centuries. Okay. So, uh, or at least that's that's when these books came out that came out during the Ming Dynasty. So the first one I want to talk about is one of my favorite books. And when I found out that it was a part of this tradition, I got really excited. It's called Romance of the Three Kingdoms by Luao Guanzhong, and he's the man. <laughs> that tells the story of about 169 to 280 AD when the Eastern Han Dynasty was falling and we entered into this warring states period of China that eventually became three kingdoms in China before they were finally unified into one. And the way that that influenced Wuxia was that you had this big, uh, you know, incredible novel spanning hundreds of years of history with uh, all kinds of, of characters, more than Game of Thrones could even boast, and these are real historical figures. This is historical fiction. Uh, and you had these really detailed accounts of combat. Mm. And people who were really brilliant strategists weren't just brilliant strategists. They were also winning because they were wizards (laughs) (laughs) using Taoist magic. Oh, man, I'm waiting for that HBO series. I would watch the hell out of it. Uh, But the thing is, it has inspired uh, so many plays, so many TV shows, so many video games uh, in China and then also in Japan and in the West. Uh, If anyone's familiar with the Dynasty Warriors video game series... That is all taking place in the romance of the Three Kingdoms. It's Those characters are all based on that. Um, in the 16th century, we get the book 
Water Margin, also translated as Outlaws of the Marsh, and that's by Shi Nian. That follows the 108 Stars of Destiny. And uh, for the big old video game nerds, you might be thinking of the Japanese translation of this book, which is called Suikoden. Uh, and that video game follows the 108 stars of destiny. Now, it, it takes pl- the story takes place in the Song Dynasty around 960 to 1279, and that follows a group of outlaws, right? Uh, or at least it's based on some real historical outlaws in the Song Dynasty. But in this fictional telling of it, they weren't really just regular outlaws, those people in the Song Dynasty. What they were were fallen gods banished from heaven who, having done their penance, were reborn as humans and now, rather than take part in a corrupt government, would fight for justice as outlaws (laughs) and be branded as such. And you can see why the government doesn't always like stories that uh, make heroes of people like this. They're not criminals. They're fallen gods (laughs) resurrected for glory. Anyway, the last classical work of Chinese literature I want to get to is 1592's Journey to the West by Wu Chang'an. This is the story of a Buddhist monk and his three disciples on their journey to India to recover ancient Buddhist scriptures. And we get so many things from this. There's all kinds of superpowers being used, transformation powers, uh, super fighting abilities, flying on clouds, (laughs) right? Uh, And my favorite thing that comes from this that's based on this is uh, Dragon Ball Z and Dragon Ball and Dragon Ball Super. Uh, I learned that I knew that this was based on the Monkey King. Mm-hmm. Um, that Dragon Ball was, and then I found out that this is the big novel that it's that also has what that Into the Badlands is based on. Yes, there is a character, one of the three disciples, whose name is Zhu Baji. Oh yeah, yes, and he's a lazy, gluttonous pig man <laughs> who used to be a heavenly commander of eighty thousand heavenly soldiers, except that he drunkenly tried to seduce the moon goddess at a dinner party and was cast from heaven. If you are familiar with the show, this will make so much sense. Oh, there's a great character that is based yeah. on that guy. Um anyway, getting moving on from how uh, I'm grateful to them for Dragon Ball Z, this literary tradition helped to strengthen an already strong uh, oral folklore tradition. And so eventually, when we have film, it's a natural thing to put these stories on screen. The first time there's a wuxia film is 1928's The Burning of the Red Lotus Temple. Uh, The glory days of the novels Mm -hmm. um, are the 1950s and 60s. If anyone wants to look up uh, some wuxia novels and try to get translations, the best-selling Chinese author alive today is Jin Yong, and he was writing a whole lot in the golden age of wuxia stories in the 1950s, 60s, and into the 70s. The glory days of the films are... Is cons- this in China? During yeah. communist China? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Uh, the glory days of the films are considered to be the 1980s and 1990s, which leads to America's introduction to wuxia stories with Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, which I already mentioned. And I should also mention that the way for Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon was paved by Bruce Lee in the 1970s. And he doesn't really do wuxia stories with the superpowers, although his plots do follow the form oftentimes. Right. Yeah, I feel like also the technology might not quite have been there for him to really do the full wuxia. Yeah, if he'd even wanted to, it, it would have been more difficult back then. Well, that was really interesting, James. That 
I'm I'm glad you got to do this. I'm so excited. <laughs> I, I yeah. I wish I wish I could talk even more about it. Um, that we could get into how Star Wars is uh, related to Wuxia too. It's it's all the things I love. It seems actually are <laughs> come to from this. Wuxia. Yeah. Well, I'm gonna pivot away from it a little bit, not to take away from Wuxia, but I'm gonna talk about the making of this TV show. Now, as we have mentioned, it's loosely based on Journey to the West, um, and they felt that this tale had been adapted so many times that it's very, very loosely based on it. They wanted to just give it a spiritual core. Um, We talked about the wuxia influence. It also takes inspiration from feudal shogun warriors um, and also from spaghetti westerns. The Man with No Name is a western that was quoted in multiple interviews as a big influence. Also, Samurai movies, uh, the Seven Samurai and the Lone Wolf Cub are the Lone Wolf and Cub are films that were uh, again referenced all the time in interviews. Visually, they were influenced by Kurosawa and Wakon Wise in the Mood for Love and House of the Flying Daggers. Now, when I mean visually, what I mean is that this world is really dark. It's po- post-apocalyptic. People are dying left and right, but it's saturated with color. Mm, so It's dark emotionally, but not yeah, visually. Even though it's violent, it's still really beautiful. So who made this violent, beautiful, kung fu, western sci-fi show? This is what we want to know. Um, It was created by Alfred Goh and Miles Miller, and they actually have a really cool history, especially as far as nerd status goes. They worked on the scripts for Spider-Man 2, and they worked on the first drafts for Iron Man when that character was still at New Line. Um, they their first features that they ever worked on were Lethal Weapon Four and Shanghai Noon. So oh. They already had a background in uh, martial arts movies. Yeah, and Jet Li's entrance to the West. Exactly. Now, before Badlands, what they were actually best known for was a little show called Smallville. Have you ever heard of it? <laughs> yes, it's actually a, a show that our guest producer Aaron Foley loves very much. Oh yeah, and this is a show about Clark Kent in the fictional town of Smallville before he become Superman. Now, that sounds like pretty standard fare right now, but at the time when Smallville came out, it was a huge risk. It premiered in 2001, and the X-Men movie had just come out, so superheroes weren't really a thing. And in fact, the WB insisted on no tights and no flights. So People nothing, didn't dare. Yeah, no, nothing out of the ordinary, no silly superhero things. Well, they needn't have worried. Uh, Smallville became the WB's WB's most popular show for a while, actually. Um, And they kind of, they they don't take a lot of credit for it, but I feel like it did help the superhero resurgence a little bit. Mm -hmm. Now, you would think they've been working on the superhero show. Why not make another one? Why not uh, cash in on the success? Well, they didn't want to follow in their own footsteps, they said. And also, they feel like right now the market's a little bit oversaturated, which we love it, but it's true. It is. <laughs> and they wanted to do something completely different in the way that Smallville was different at the time and a show that would make them jealous if they saw it. And they didn't know of any martial arts shows on TV. Now, they didn't want to do the traditional Hong Kong cop comes over and hooks up with an American They said the guns always get kicked out of people's hands and it doesn't feel, quote-unquote, real. They wanted to build their own world, set up a social structure, and they felt it was also a way to get away from source material and make something that was uniquely theirs, no IP. 
So they met up with their friends, Stacey Schur and Michael Schamberg, who were the producers of Django Unchained, mm. and they already had a deal at AMC. And apparently they only pitched this show to AMC. And AMC had apparently been looking to do a martial arts show. Oh, that's fantastic. Also, the creators of Smallville got together with the creators <laughs> of, of Django Unchained. The producers, yeah. And what you get is Into the Badlands. And that I don't understand. Mm. <laughs> sense, actually. I guess it does. And uh, they were very upfront with AMC. They said they wanted to make it authentic, and AMC fully committed. This was the first time AMC had made a commitment to this high budget of a show that didn't have a pre-existing fan base, like, say, you know, a superhero show or The Walking Dead. Also, it is the first show that they ordered straight to series without even seeing a pilot. Because they just saw it was so cool. I mean, it's funny you say it doesn't have uh, that intellectual property, those big name recognition kind of characters to mm -hmm. help support it. But it is based on all the cool things. It is, but it's not like, and this comic book series that you love or this book that you love. There's yeah. nothing like that to really draw in a core base of fans right away. Yes. So the thing is, they had to get... The martial arts. And so Stacey Scher already knew Daniel Wu, who is the star and one of the producers on the show, from filming Contagion. And so she brought him on and Stephen Fung, uh, who is Daniel Wu's producing partner from Hong Kong. And he's also a martial arts star, and he became the fight director for the series. Now, I'm going to talk about Daniel Wu because he's kind of the spokesman for the series. He's the lead. I feel like he's a lot of the heart and soul of it. Yeah, when you're the lead and you're one of the producers. Yeah, it's, it's your baby. Yeah. He grew up in Orenda. I have to throw that in there because that's the Bay Area. East Bay. And I'm always like, I'm always happy when we get to mention East Bay people on the podcast. Uh, Wu started learning Kung Fu at 11 after seeing Jet Li's first movie, Shaolin Temple. His teacher, who we learned Kung Fu from, also taught Tai Chi, Chinese medicine, and brush painting. And so he was able to learn how Kung Fu permeates all aspects of life. Mm. He graduated from college with a degree in architecture, but was frustrated by how creatively stifling the real world is. And so he went on a soul-searching mission like you do and visited Hong Kong. Oh, I want to do that. Yeah. <laughs> well, you're actually really going to want to do it when you hear how it went for him. Yeah. Um, he felt it was a historic mo moment. It was 1997, and it, um, the Hong Kong was being handed back to China. Mm -hmm. But on his way to Hong Kong, he first stopped over in Japan, and he spent all his money there. So he is at a bar in Hong Kong. Uh, a director sees him and asks him to be in his commercial, and he says he accepted because he wanted the money to keep on traveling. Then a director named Yo Fan saw the commercial and asked him to play the lead in his next film. That same week, he met Jackie Chan at a party, and Jackie told him he wanted to be his manager. Because he was destined for greatness. So going on a soul-searching mission to Hong Kong really worked out, so maybe you should try it. Hey, I don't know if I'm good enough to just get picked up. At a bar. <laughs> at a bar to be a, a commercial model. I don't yeah. know if that's the kind of thing that... I can't promise the same results. Yeah. So he decided to stay, build his career in Hong Kong, and he became a star there. He said he loves the vibe, and you get people from all walks of life coming together who are passionate about film. And he said he never really thought about coming to America because they weren't putting Asian males on screen or in leads, and he's playing the leads in all these Hong Kong films. Mm -hmm. Now, um... He said when Stacey Scher came to him and asked him, can we do Into the Badlands? He said, only if you use a Hong Kong team. 
And so that resulted in him bringing over his team and his friends from Hong Kong. <laughs> Only if we hire all of my friends. I promise they're the best. They, they are, though. Yeah. Um, and also in the casting of Sonny and how he got the part, from the beginning, um, they were adamant that Sonny had to be Asian. AMC was adamant it, adamant about it as well. And he said that he was telling people, you need to find a young guy to play the lead because if the show goes on for five to six years, the amount of fighting is just insane. It's about two fights an episode. And Wu had actually stopped doing martial arts films because he tore an ACL and had broken an ankle. And he was also 40 when Into the Badlands came out. Oh, wow. He's in great shape. Yeah. And he was just going to come on as a producer. And so they're searching for this young guy. And they also wanted someone who kind of had a name behind him already. And they just couldn't find him. So he did audition. He was like, I auditioned because I didn't want to just get it because I was the producer. And he... He fell in love with the character, and I think everyone kind of turned to him and was like, so you're going to do it, mm -hmm. right? I wonder if that idea was in the back of his mind the whole time, though. Even if he thought I shouldn't do it, I'm 40. If he was kind of thinking as they described this character, I could do it. So let's talk a little bit about the martial arts as well, because it's just so cool, and it's a big part of the show. The martial arts coordinator is one of the biggest from Hong Kong. They call him Master Didi, and I'm about to butcher his name, because they keep on calling him Master Didi. They never say his real name. We already had a segment of me butchering names. So, so it's Hun Chuku, I think. I'm sure that's butchered. Um, and he trained with Yin Wo Ping, who you might know from the Kill Bill films, Crouching Tiger, Hidden, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, Once Upon a Time in China. And uh, Master Didi has worked on all of these films. Wu Ping is the first fight choreographer that I ever learned the name of as a teenager. I think it's the first one most Americans learn the name of. When filming, there are two production units operating simultaneously. The drama unit which moves the story forward, and then there's a whole fight movement that executes the fight sequences. The producers say that working with a Hong Kong fight team is like working with a jazz band. Now, that doesn't quite add up to me, but at least, when I, first, yeah, <laughs> at least when I first heard about it, I was like, excuse me? But let's, let's hear this out. So the writers write out the sequence. They have the story points where the characters have to get to, and therefore there's kind of a structure to the fight. The Hong Kong team comes in, I should say that the fight team comes in, reads what they've written, and so they have notes on, they know the notes they have to hit. There we go. And in between, they come up with improvised bits, which the producers say are just amazing. That's the jazz band part that just blows my mind when you were first telling me about that. Right. And the actors never have to memorize the fight sequences all at once. The fight team comes up with 10 or 12 moves, which the actors go learn while they're lighting the shot. Then they do those 12 moves, and then they start the process all over again. Um, Wu says that they use this style of action so it never feels over-rehearsed. And he throws some shade at the fight in the Matrix between Keanu and Lawrence Fishburne because he felt that you could tell that they'd done it a thousand times. I can't tell. But I feel like it's maybe like us with sound quality where like we can hear if sounds a little bit off, but to the normal viewer, they might not be able to hear it. We both do sound engineering sometimes. Yeah, I wonder now, gosh, now when I look at that fight, I'll probably start to see it. Like, yeah. oh, you can anticipate Yeah, it. now that it's been pointed out, you'll actually notice it. And Wu says the goal was to bring legitimate Chinese martial arts cinema to a production with a Hollywood-style budget. So you also might ask, how did AMC get to this place that they are producing a large-budget martial arts show? What happened? Because... 
over almost 10 years ago, AMC was known as the network that just showed vintage movies. Mm -hmm. I remember that. My parents had cable and AMC always had old movies on. Well, do you know the show that changed that? I guess you're looking at my notes, so you know. <laughs> yeah, but I, I mean, I, I think I probably would have known anyway, but Mad Men. Yes. So in 2007, AMC uh, produced Mad Men. And then in 2008, they came out with Breaking Bad. And the network, within a year, managed to reinvent itself into one of the most prestigious networks on TV. Between those two shows, AMC got 13 Emmy Best Drama nominations and six wins. And then, you're looking at my notes again, but they premiered another show that also changed AMC. And what was that show? The Walking Dead. Yes. Which I feel like is more related to what they're trying to do. Well, I'm going to get to that. Don't jump the shark. I'm sorry. In 2010 is when The Walking Dead came out. And it didn't win any awards. But it dominated the advertising game. It became the most watched series on cable. And as of an article I read from 2015, it commanded the highest ad prices on TV besides football. Oh, the only thing bigger than zombies, football. (laughs) And so let's look at, like, the network's plan. When they first started making Mad Men and Breaking Bad, there wasn't any real competition besides HBO and maybe Showtime for prestige shows. Netflix and Amazon weren't making shows yet, and FX hadn't really started doing the prestige television thing. So, three years later, AMC had to make a choice. And they decided, instead of trying to make the next Mad Men, which was garnering a lot of prestige... It wasn't really making them the money, so they decided to try and find the next Walking Dead. They sat down, they had a bunch of self-reflection, and they said, why don't we chase the money? (laughs) (laughs) Pretty much. I would probably do the same thing. Um, And they they had a hard time with it. So Mad Men, the year Mad Men ended, which was 2015, was the same year that Into the Badlands came out. And it was a really important year to AMC. Uh, They were saying it kind of felt like a do-or-die type of year. They had two period dramas out, Turn and Halt and Catch Fire, and they were doing okay. But they had a really banging year. You know what else came out that year? What? Fear the Walking Dead. (laughs) Better Call Saul and Into the Badlands. And Into the Badlands was the third highest rated freshman series in any cable history, just behind Fear the Walking Dead and Better Call Saul. So when they decided to chase the money, they said, okay, guys, I got an idea. (laughs) (laughs) Spin-offs. We're going to be okay. Right, but that was the way to go because those were the two highest rated shows ever to come out on the first year on cable. And it makes it possible to have a new thing that isn't related to any previous intellectual property in Into the Walk in, Into, Into the, the Badlands. Bad, Into the Walking Dead. Um, and it still continued to do well. The uh, viewership has continued to grow. And when Into the Badlands was renewed for the third season, AMC ordered 16 episodes instead of 10. And you know those episodes aren't cheap to make. They are certainly not. Each one is getting more and more expensive. Also, the first season only had six episodes. Yes, so it's gone 6 to 10 to 16. Maybe fourth season will get 24. Uh, It averages about 3.6 million viewers. It is the fourth most watched returning drama on cable. So... It's doing okay. It did well. Turns out there's a market for a Hong Kong action show with a Hollywood-style budget. But the question is whether or not we like it. So, James? Uh, Let me say that I am 
the market for this. They were trying to find me, and they did. Actually, a shout-out to uh, Karen Rott of Hypable.com, who it was her enthu- uh, enthusiasm that first tipped me off to the show. Right. She was a guest on our Legion episode, and I think I found it the same way because she kept on hyping it on Twitter and writing articles about it on Hypable. Um, I love this show, too, and I love it more and more. The more I watch it. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think I watched six episodes in one sitting, or in one day at the very least, just on to the next one, on to the next one. Building. uh, (laughs) And it was never too much? No, no. Because it it keeps ratcheting up the intensity to a place where you wouldn't think it could get any more intense. Um, Actually, uh, uh, we were watching the end of the show together, and a friend of ours who was in the other room was saying that she kept waiting for the intensity of the music and the sound of the action and the violence and all that to to slow down, mm-hmm. to peter out, and and to eventually have some kind of climax. And it kept outdoing itself. <laughs> yeah. And she said she could hear our vocal reactions, like whatever was happening was still really exciting. But like, how could we still be, you know, surprised and gasping when, you know, it had been going that hard for that long? So I don't watch Walking Dead. I'm not too much a fan of zombie horror movies. I can, but as a rule, anyone who listens to the podcast will know it's not really a genre I gravitate to. I'm not into zombies either. Yeah. Um, However, I I love this track that um, TV is on. I actually... I, I like Mad Men. I like Breaking Bad. I think they're great shows, but I get more enjoyment out of these types of shows. Like, types of shows i think game of thrones is of the same track and studios are trying to basically find the next game of thrones and the next walking dead of course as well and i'm sure it's expensive for studios and there's a high probability of failure and it can be frustrating but these are shows that i love and want to be made so it's so exciting that right now the market is literally churning out shows that are made for me yeah no, it's thrilling. I mean, I, I think we we felt a similar thing. At least I did when superhero movies first became a thing. Mm, it was I, like, oh, really? This is they're making this for me. Or when it got to the point that Netflix was doing a premium television mm. R-rated kind of version of Daredevil. It was like, what is this world we live in now? I really enjoy Marvel movies, but and superhero movies in general. But I don't love them the same way I think you and Kyle do. I don't. I grew up enjoying. Superheroes, but not loving them in the way that I love fantasy and sci-fi worlds. To me, that is the most exciting thing. Like the idea that shows like The Expanse are being made and being done well. And this, and we can get into talking about this for all its quote-unquote hokiness, there's still a lot being done well and there's a lot of love and the production value is very high, and there's so much care put into it. There's everything. a lot of craft put into it, uh, but not in every aspect. We we can't get into that. But I was going to say, for me, I mean, I did grow up loving uh, superheroes. Uh, I've read Batman long enough that it feels like he's a personal friend of mine. But <laughs> with uh, the worlds that I've always wanted to inhabit, the worlds that I've always wanted to get away to, mm-hmm. This is the kind of story that I've wanted to get into. This is my kind of escape. This, And I've only learned because of doing this podcast that it's a wuxia-style story. Those oh, kinds of powers that I find in anime that are influenced by those kinds of uh, stories and legends. Or, say, Star Wars, which now I've learned is obviously influenced by Taoist chi ideas. And, and this is something that straddles th- those worlds. 
So this is something I've always loved too and didn't quite know how to put a name to. Because in my head, if I fantasize about myself being this like awesome fighter, I realize the kind of fighting that I imagine myself doing is wuxia style fighting that like oh yeah i'll be able to walk on walls or like jump up really high i think avatar always features a lot in my mind when i picture myself fighting and probably the force sorry the avatar that we mentioned earlier is nickelodeon's avatar the last airbender it is the best tvy7 thing you will ever see and one of the best things you will ever see yeah it's one of my top five tv shows if not my favorite tv show yeah so I have some questions for you, just to veer off how wonderful this is. And we do love it, right? Oh, yeah, we do love it. Uh, the, the martial arts in this, the the level of action, uh, the attention to detail, the the stakes that are in fights, even, even the way that people um, interact emotionally during fights, the intensity of the looks and the relationships that make a fight have actual stakes. It's all so well done. So I want to ask you some questions, just for our audience that watches the show. Maybe they want to know our opinions on this. Okay. How important is acting? Oh, God. Good acting, I should say. Here's It's important enough because this is what this show does, right? <laughs> it gets by with a lot of not great acting. Sometimes it manages to escape with just awful... Uh, I, I don't even know how to describe it. Sometimes I feel like some of the actors, if acting were swimming, they're barely staying alive in the water. <laughs> Their head is about to dip under at any moment. Um, that's if acting were swimming. Uh, but there are other people who are really charismatic, who give really powerful performances. Who are carrying it. Who are carrying it. And they know that's their job. It's a lot to ask of somebody um, but there are actors on that show who can anchor the thing emotionally, and God bless them, they do it. And my theory is some of these people are so gifted with martial arts or with their body that they were cast because they could handle the physical aspects of the role. And that's necessary for the level of combat that's taking place. And when you understand that this is what that show is doing at a higher level than anything else you're seeing on television as far as bringing Hong Kong-style wire food combat to American audiences on a weekly basis. I, I don't know who else is even trying to do that. No one else is trying to do that. The level they do it at, yeah, you, you need somebody who's physically capable of it first and then try to find good actors second. It's amazing they have any good actors on it. So another question that I have, how many times can people be betrayed by other people or think that they're betrayed by other people in a TV show? Infinitely. Okay, and the it's okay? The betrayal never needs to end. It is okay. Okay. It depends on how you dress it up. They dress it up the very well. The plot is very soap opera. Oh, my goodness. But yeah. It gets better, though. I don't know if it gets better or if the action gets so intense that you no longer mind. Well, you're more invested in the characters. You do start to care for them. I, which I do. Which is a, a huge point to the show. I, I have to say, in the second season, there, there's at least one fight that takes place where I was shocked that it was it was that it was even occurring, even though I shouldn't have been, and it kind of hurt my feelings that those characters were fighting. And uh, it was also just a beautiful fight. Like, like everything was happening in that yeah. fight that you could ask for. So I talk a lot on the podcast about how I love YA literature. In a sense, this show is a YA show just with really awesome martial arts. It the, is. the plot points, it's like the CW shows, which I actually have very little patience for, but the production level 
on this is so high that I actually really enjoy it. It kind of feel it, it's like that warm, fuzzy comfort food mm-hmm. in a TV show. And I've been try I try to get into other shows. I know The Magicians is a show on sci-fi people like a lot, but I just it, I can't quite get into it. But this hits that YA soft spot for me. Yeah. And you have to have some patience for uh, teenagers who are experiencing all the feelings in a post-apocalyptic setting. Yeah. But if you have the patience for that and and knowing that, hey, they're growing as actors over the course of the of the show. Yeah. You know, just as other people, you know, I can point out too, season two, they are better at martial arts. Mm -hmm. Like the people that had to train just to do the show who weren't uh, who are hard for their ability to adapt, but not necessarily because they were already Hong Kong action ready. They're better in the second season. Oh, definitely. And I saw interviews with them where they said that they actually did classes and training in between the seasons, which I think I would do, too. Oh, yeah. And I, when you first told me that, it was wonderful to hear because I, I think I, I had said that, right? I had said in particular there's one character. Um, I don't want to give spoilers for who lives to the second season, but there was one character who I was proud of them watching for mm-hmm. how cool they had managed to become. So this is my last question. How much slow motion is too much slow motion? Oh, it depends on what we're watching in slow-mo. I mean, a man unsheathing his sword with grim determination. Uh, I think you're allowed a few of those. (laughs) How many is too many? (laughs) A half dozen. A half dozen. (laughs) You can have it in half your episodes. Okay. There's a lot of slow-mo. Yeah, there is. And it's not all unsheathing. It's a lot of, Yeah, it's a thing where you kind of want to roll your eyes, but then you're so into it that it, it, it just feels good. Yeah, and I I have to say too that uh, speaking of the acting in this the second season actually brings on new characters, one of which I think is just a brilliant addition to the show, and who I found myself hoping would survive purely because we need them to perform the not great dialogue so very well. <laughs> so you recommend Into the Badlands? Yes, to anyone who thinks that Hong Kong action is awesome and that chi powers are awesome. I would recommend this to the same demographic, but if you don't like violence, this is not the show for you. Steer clear. Oh, my goodness. I've got a pretty high threshold for martial arts violence, but I was gasping with some things that happened. It's very gory. I really enjoy the show. I love the aesthetic, but it is a lot for me. So, Mom, you would not like this. Neither would my dad. But overall, Into the Badlands... We are very enthusiastic about it. Oh, yeah. I can't wait for season three. It looks fantastic. Thank you all so much for listening. Once again, I'm Claire White. And I'm James Foey. And we are Dragon, Sexy Robots, and Adventures, a Nerd Manual. Feel free to contact us on our website at dsripodcast.com. We would love it if you could rate and review us on iTunes. That helps us out a lot. You can find the show on Twitter at Podcast. I can be found on Twitter at Along With Claire. That's C L A I R E. You can find me, our most times producer and Mar- sometime co host, uh, at James Foey Jr. That's F O U H E Y J R. And you can find our third member, Kyle, who hopefully is enjoying his vacation. You know he is. The man has a good time. He does. At Klex303, that's K L E X 303. You can learn more about Into the Badlands and Wuxia. Wuxia. Wuxia, excuse me, 
and the production on the show at our um, on our Facebook page and our Twitter page we'll, where we'll be posting some of our show notes. Yes, and you'll learn things like that I mispronounced Yoshia earlier in this podcast. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> our producer is James Foey, and shout out to our guest producer, Aaron Foey. No relation, right? I am proud to say that is my brother. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to deny it, but that is my beloved younger brother. Our logo is done by Patty Highland, and our theme was composed by Pete Rowan. Once again, this is Dragons, Sexy Robots, and Adventures, a Nerd Manual. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you in two weeks.